Good morning. Please take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 4. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 16 this morning. When you find that, if you can, please stand with me as we read God's Word, standing out of honor to God and reverence for Him and His Word. Genesis 4, 1 through 16. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. But you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother. And it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, so that no one finding him would slay him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And this is the word of God. And Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would teach us this day, that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in your word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I hope you had a good week this last week, working. Last week, we saw that work is a gift from God, that both the ability to work and the ability with which we work are gifts from God. We also saw that work is a calling from God, that each believer has vocations, callings in the home and the church and the community and the marketplace with which we're to serve God. But today, we're going to look at the account of the first two children listed in Scripture, Cain and Abel. First two babies mentioned, first two bundles of joy. Look at verse 1, Genesis chapter 4. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. Now Cain means gotten one. 
It means to acquire, to get, to possess. It signifies an acquisition. It literally, uh, Eve would be saying, I've got him. Here he is. She says, I have gotten a man-child. She uses the Hebrew word for grown man. Interesting that woman came from man and now man originates from woman, showing that both are interdependent. She says, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. She acknowledges God's role. But in the naming, it's interesting, it shows a synergism. God does his part, I do my part. And in a sense, Eve seems to be saying, I have done this. It signals some problems down the line for Cain in his life and in his lineage. In verse 2, we see that she gives birth to his brother Abel. Now, Abel's name means vapor or breath. It's, it, it means to exhale. It's that which ascends. It's how James put it. Uh, life is but a vapor. It appears for a while, then it vanishes. Now, his name signifies the relative insignificance of his time here on earth. Now, it is likely that Eve thought that Cain was the promised seed that would deliver them. Uh, as, uh, Genesis 3.15. Matthew Henry said this, Perhaps she thought that this was the promised seed. If so, she was woefully disappointed. Abel signifies vanity. When she thought she had the promised seed in Cain, whose name signifies possession, she was so taken up with him that another son was as vanity to her. Whatever the case, in the course of time, both Cain and Abel came to God with offerings. We see that in verses 3 and 4. We also see that for Abel and his offering, God had regard. He was pleased. But for Cain and his offering, he did not have regard. Now, next week, in the context of worship, we're going to look at those verses more in depth. I will say one thing about that, though. For Cain and his offering, for Abel and his offering, the worshiper, the offerer, is indistinguishable from their offering. They come together. And so for Cain, God was not pleased. So what happens? Cain becomes overcome, overtaken with anger. His countenance falls, visibly angry. Now some of us, you can read us like a book. If we're happy, you know it. If we're sad, you know it. Others, you have no idea what's going on. But for Cain, it was obvious. His countenance fell. And so God speaks to him in verse 6. He asks him a question. Why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? God here is intervening. He is giving a chance for Cain to have a change of heart. God admonishes him with a question. He gives him a chance to confess his sin. Why are you angry? And he could have answered, I'm really mad that my brother is pleasing to you, but I'm not. Whatever the case, Cain does not answer. And I believe it shows the lack of the kind of faith that pleases God. Cain's sin really begins with a hostile attitude toward God, which led to his disobedience. But God warns him to not give in to this temptation to keep sinning. Look at verse 7. God says, if you do well, If you truly seek me and not your own standing, 
See, Cain knew right from wrong, but he rebelled against it. God says, if you do well, your countenance is going to be lifted up. But if you do not do well, then sin is crouching at the door. If you don't do well, if you continue going in this direction, watch out. Because sin, and the Hebrew wording here suggests a threatening demon lying just outside the door, could be an allusion to the serpent lying on the ground ready to strike the heel, Genesis 3.15. But whatever the case, Cain was led astray and deceived by our adversary. In verse 8, we read that Cain told Abel about his encounter with God. He tells him. This is what God said. And then it tells us that they were out in the field and he rose up against his brother and he killed him. It's an example of the total depravity of humanity. That in the context of the very first family, we have the very first murder. You think your family's messed up? Take comfort. So was the first family. What motivated it? Cain wanted preeminence over his brother. And in verse 9, God asks him another question. Where is your brother? Kind of parallels God's question to Adam, doesn't it? Adam, where are you? After they had sinned. God knew where Adam was. God knew where Abel was. But he's giving him here a chance to admit, a chance to come clean, a chance to confess what he had done, just as he had done with Adam and Eve. It shows us the wonderful grace of God that allows room to come clean. In response, we have the first human question recorded. Am I my brother's keeper? You see, Cain says, I don't know where he's at. Am I my brother's keeper? Unbelievable, by the way. He flies in the face of God here. He talks back, in a sense, defiantly to God. It shows a hardness of heart. It shows an indifference to the things of God. Verse 10, God asks another question. What have you done? Mirrors his question to Eve. What is this you have done? Cain, what is this you have done? Another chance to confess. In verses 11 and 12, we see God lay out the consequences. You see, there is no confession. There is no repentance on Cain's part. There is no admission of guilt. But in verse 11, God gives the consequences. There will be no fruit for Cain. There will be no field for Cain. There will be no friends for Cain. And instead of accepting the terms that God lays out, Cain complains. Look at verse 13. My punishment is too great to bear. Thinking of himself rather than his grieving parents over the loss of their child. He complains. It's interesting. Adam and Eve, when God gave them the consequences for their sin, they accepted it and went on. Restored relationship with God. Here, Cain comes and says, you've driven me from the ground. I'll be hidden from your face. I'm going to be killed. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it ironic? 
He didn't want to be his brother's keeper, and now no one will be his keeper. The murderer is now fearing death. What do we see in verse 15? More grace. Verse 15, God says, Whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And God appoints, sets a mark on Cain, not to punish him, but to protect him. He sets a protective mark on Cain. He covers him. You see more grace. Now in verse 16, we read that Cain went out from the presence of God. Next to the verse that said that he killed his brother, this is the saddest verse. He went out from the presence of God. He went to the land of Nod. It means wandering. He was alienated from God. He was having no abiding place. He rejected God. He rejected God's truth. He walked away from God. So there you have it. The account of the first two children listed in Scripture. The account of the first two brothers recognized in Scripture. Sad story. Tragic. But what can we learn of God's perspective on children from Genesis chapter 4? Some of you have kids. Some of you have kids who live at home. Some of you have kids that have moved away from home. Some of you have no kids. Some of you are kids. But whatever your situation, God has a word for us today. I believe that verses 1 and 2 show us something. That children are a welcome addition to a family. They're blessings. They're, they're gifts from God. They're gracious gifts to be great, gratefully received. But they're not to be the center. They're not to be the focal point. You see, making anyone or anything other than Jesus the center is idolatry. And Jesus comes first, then marriage, then children are a welcome addition. The marriage relationship comes before children. Now, it's common, though, nowadays for kids to become the central focus of families. Child-centered families develop kids who are overprivileged and overprotected. They're overprivileged. They're overindulged, living with a sense of entitlement, expecting a trophy for everything. It's one of my pet peeves, by the way. I've coached a lot of youth sports. I don't like the trophy for everything mentality. You should get a trophy if you win. Now, my soccer team, one of the ones I'm coaching right now with my daughter, we will not be getting a trophy this year if things continue the way things are going. But I'm going to deal with it and move on. I'm not going to buy them all trophies so they'll all feel good about themselves. But they're also overprotected often. They become emotionally immature and unprepared to make their own decisions. As one writer put it, many children today are shielded, flattered, anxiety-ridden, or passive-aggressive, walking into a future of inflated fears. Children whose parents constantly run interference for them may never develop the skills necessary to cope even with small frustrations. This writer went on to say, a child's calling is not to make their parents look good. A culture that fails to appreciate its children as children may be saddled with childish adults far into the future. 
There was a study recently done that showed that people's opinion of the age of adulthood now is age 26. It points to an extended adolescence that is not healthy. Now, sadly, kids who are overprivileged and overprotected often are spiritually underfed, spiritually undernourished. Only 11% of church-going American families have regular family devotions. Only 14% admit to reading the Bible with their spouse. Only 34% talk about spiritual values with their kids. Only 15% say they pray with their spouse. And 35% say they pray with their kids. But I believe that America, American Christians, excuse me, are raising a whole generation of spiritually malnourished kids. They've abdicated their God-given responsibility to teach and disciple their kids. The responsibility to evangelize and disciple them. But that's what they've been taught. I point the finger at people like me who have perpetuated a, and taught a model of ministry that basically takes it out of the parents' hands and gives the message that the church can do it all for you. What happened to daily prayer and praise and Bible reading in homes wasn't needed. The church does that for you. Parents just drive them to and fro. It's not a healthy picture. In Scripture, the passing on of faith through multiple generations is expected. In fact, go to Deuteronomy 6. I'm sure you figured that I would go there. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And when you find this, I want to have you put a marker there too because I want to point one thing out, then we're going to come back to this and see something else. But God says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1, this is the commandment, the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land where you are going over to possess it. Verse 2, so that you and your son and your grandson, three generations there, might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be prolonged. Now go to Psalm 78. Keep your finger there in in Deuteronomy 6. We're going to go back to that. But Psalm 78 God says, listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. He says, I'm going to speak. And in verse 4, he says, we won't conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. Now look at verse 5. He established a testimony in Jacob. He appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers. Now count with me here. Fathers, that's one generation that they should teach them to their children, that's two generations, that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, depends on how you count, but that would be three, that they may arise and tell them to their children. So you either have three or four generations here of passing on the faith, parents to children. Now pastors will often use sermons on children to encourage people to teach Sunday school. I have a word for you. If you have kids at home, I don't want you to teach Sunday school. By the way, it was very interesting after I said that comment first hour. I loved the looks going back and forth up and down the rows. I don't want you to teach Sunday school. I want you to teach Monday school 
and Tuesday school and Wednesday school and Thursday school and Friday school and Saturday school and Sunday school. See, teach your own kids first, then go teach somebody else's kids. The church and the home are uh, supposed to be a partnership. Uh, In Scripture, we see the model of older teaching younger. We see a, a shared responsibility, but the first and primary responsibility for teaching and discipling lands in the home. The job of the parents. We're shepherds in our, in our home first. I consider my roles in life to be first, I'm a believer. First, I'm a child of God. Then I'm a husband. Then I'm a pastor. Excuse me. Then I'm a husband. Then I'm a parent. Then I'm a pastor. God has placed me as in the responsibility to raise my children to know and love Jesus. Now, that primary responsibility is not yours, but we have a part in each other's lives. But I'm talking about primary responsibilities here. Some of you have asked, what's next after the 31-day challenge? I've said, well, just I encourage everyone to pick up their Bibles on a daily basis and read them uh, alone and with the members of their families. But we, are, we do have something to give you today, a, a list of great Bible stories in the Old and New Testaments that you could use to read. 2 Timothy 3.15, Paul is speaking to Timothy, and he said, From childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation. In, cha- in chapter 1, verse 5, he had said, I am mindful of your sincere faith, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I'm sure it's in you as well. His beloved grandmother and mother passed on the faith to this young boy. Now go back to Deuteronomy 6 for just a moment, please. Verse 4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. Verse 6, These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. Look at verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You shall talk and teach and bind and write the words of God. It would be a part of the entire life. Whenever I hear someone say, you know, we used to have family devotions, as if, well, we tried, but we failed, I, th- I think, did you also used to brush your teeth? Do that every day, hopefully, right? Now, Jewish parents' duty was to teach their children the law when they were five years old. Children are a welcome addition to a family, but we need to take seriously our responsibility that God has given us as leaders in our homes and initiate spiritual activities, meaningful times in the word, in praise, in prayer, in service, together. Now, I hope that if this creates some cognitive dissonance for you, that it will really make you think. That maybe it will make you think a little differently about the role of the church in the home. Maybe think a little more biblically about the role of the church in the home. We're to support one another. Now next, 
Verses 3 through 16, I believe, show us that children are a work in progress. Now, we all like happy endings, but the story here is a sad one. Cain was characterized by a competitive spirit, by a bent towards sin, by jealousy, by anger. And Genesis 4 shows us that some children walk in the truth. Abel did that. There are others in Scripture we can point out. Josiah and David and Daniel and Enoch and Samuel and John the Baptist and Jesus himself as a young boy. And Timothy. In Matthew 23, 35, Abel is spoken of as righteous. Righteous Abel. Now God uses parents and others to help kids walk in the truth. I'd like you to turn to Ephesians 6. You probably could guess that I would go there as well. But kids, this is for you. Parents, you can thank me later. <laughs> Ephesians 6.1, if you know it, just say it with me. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. <laughs> now, obey means to listen to and to do what the parent is saying. To honor, which is in verse 2, the, second, uh, the fifth commandment being quoted here now. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with the promise. It may be well with you and that you will may live a long life on the earth. To honor means to count as valuable, to treasure, to value. The idea here, kids, is that your primary calling as you want to please God, is that you would honor your father and your mother. You would listen to them and do what they say. Of course, unless they tell you to break, break the law or do something immoral. But the idea here is that it, they're, they're pointing you in the right direction. You're to consider them so valuable that you want to do what they say. Now that will go against your natural bent. Proverbs 22.6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, it will, he will not depart from it. That is not a promise. It's a principle. It's a proverb. And what it means is, train up a child literally according to his way, the bent that God has given them, the gifting that God has given. Cooperate with God according to who he made your child to be. And he won't depart from that way, even when he is old. That's the way God made him. But children are to... Obey and to honor, and there's a part for parents. In verse 4, it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Provoke them to anger, to exasperate them. That literally means to bring someone to a deep-seated anger or resentment. The Greek um, construction here is the negative with the present imperative. It's used to prohibit a habitual action that doesn't happen overnight. It's caused by repeated actions that cause kids to be angry and sullen and resentful. And one catalyst could be a parent's unwillingness to apologize or to ask forgiveness when they have done wrong. Bring them up means to nourish them, to nurture them, to care for them. And discipline means education, child training, it indicates the discipline used to correct disobedience in a Christian home. Instruction is training by words, either words of encouragement or admonition or reproof and rebuke when they're needed. 
3 John chapter 4, John says, in a spiritual sense, I have no greater joy than to hear of my children walking in the truth. Every parent has no greater joy than to hear their children are walking in God's truth. Now, we also see that some stray from the truth. That's what Cain did. God spoke to Cain about it. Gave him a chance to do right or wrong. And really, starting at verse 6, when God asks the first question to Cain, he's basically parenting Cain. He is giving him an opportunity to repent. He is showing grace. He is protecting, correcting. Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. And some reject the truth. Cain did. We see it also in Scripture. Eli's sons and Absalom and others. But Cain refused God's warnings. He rejected God's word. There were no confessions, no repentance on Cain's part. 1 John chapter 3, verse 12 sheds some light on the condition of Cain's heart and soul. 1 John in chapter 3, verse 11 says, This message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Verse 12, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. For what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Several weeks ago, we addressed the topics of sin and salvation. Those who are in Christ are eternally secure. God knows those who are his. That there is one unforgivable sin. Dying, rejecting Jesus. The deliberate refusal of the grace of God. But what if someone's conscience is bothering him to the point where they feel like they're too guilty for God to forgive? If so, there is assurance that forgiveness is possible. That the very fact that you're bothered by your sin shows that God has not given you over to a depraved mind. 1 John 2, 1 and 2 says, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. But the danger is when one can continually reject God and His Word and not feel any remorse over that rejection, over that rebellion. If someone claims to be a Christian, but is responding to God in that way, there is reason to doubt if that person is saved. That only God knows for sure, but the evidence clearly points to an unregenerate heart. The scriptures tell us the tree is known by its fruit, and that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And God's warnings should shake the spiritually indifferent from their complacency. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God, Hebrews 10.31. And Isaiah 55 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. Let the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him. And he will abundantly pardon. Some children walk in the truth. Some children stray from the truth. And some children outright reject it. In 1874, the state of New York had a terrible problem. 
Its prisons were overcrowded. They couldn't build enough jails fast enough. And the state officials didn't know what to do. So they hired a man named R.A. Dugdale to do some research. And he came back with a fascinating report. He took two families over six generations to see how different generations and different lifestyles affected children. Now, the first half of his report was about the Jukes family. Max Jukes and his brother married sisters. Neither of them were believers. None of the couples believed in Christian training. They had 1,026 descendants. Because of their lifestyles, 300 of them died young. Many others suffered from poor health. Among the descendants, 140 served an average of 13 years each in prison. 190 had jobs of ill repute. 100 were alcoholics. Over a 100-year period, this this family cost the state of New York $1.2 million. Now, the second half of the report was about the Edwards family. You'll recognize the name Jonathan Edwards, who was a Christian minister who married a girl of like belief. Edwards and his wife had 729 descendants. Of these, 300 were preachers, 65 were college professors, 13 were university presidents, 60 were authors, 3 were congressmen, and 1 served as vice president of the United States. With the exception of one grandson, Aaron Burr, who was hanged, this family cost the state of New York not a single penny. Now, the difference between these two families was that one believed in Christ-centered focus, Christian training, while the other did not. Now, we know God looks at the heart, not the outward appearance. We also know that parents do affect the future of their kids. But we also know it doesn't happen as obviously as in this story, that not all children of good parents become model citizens, and that not all offspring of negative role models turn out bad. We have this tendency that's not fair. We want to connect all the dots. And we either praise or blame parents for how their kids came out. We don't leave much room for the sovereignty of God. Yet, the possibility for a child going the right way in life is enhanced if he comes from a home where love and grace prevail, where God's God and his word are honored. God wants our example to agree with our words, that there is nothing to pull out the rug from under what we say. Whatever the case, I know that some of you are deeply grieved over your children and the direction they're going in life. Be that a child, young or old, a grandchild, a niece, a nephew, other loved ones, and you're burdened for them, and rightly so. But we, when it comes down to it, we must leave them in God's hands. Now, if they're still alive, there is still hope that they can turn from their sin and be saved or come back to God. And we, on our part, can pray, we can warn, we can love, and then leave them in God's hands. Now, there's another story in the Bible about two brothers. One brother left home and squandered his inheritance. He strayed. He rejected the truth and the teachings of his youth. But then God brought him to his senses, and he admitted his sin. There was room for repentance for him. And he returned to his father. And his father lovingly accepted him. It's the story of the loving father and the wayward son. 
You know, as God's children, we all stray. Every one of us. We are prone to wander. But God gently leads us back home. Jesus said, He who comes to me, I will not cast out. Isaiah 9, verse 6, foreseeing the Messiah, said, A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. Jesus, the son, was given to us so that we might become his children. He gave his life on the cross so that we who were dead could be made alive spiritually, born spiritually. And John 1.12 says, To as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. When that happens, we become a welcome addition to the family of God. We become God's work in progress. And if you have yet to come to faith in Christ for the total forgiveness and salvation that he offers, I encourage you to do that right now. Come to faith in Jesus, believing that he died on the cross, that he rose from the dead, that he paid your penalty. I encourage you to come to him now. And if you've been wandering, today might just be the day for you to come home. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you and praise you for your goodness. Lord, we thank you for your great unbounding mercy and grace that you extend to us again and again and again. And Lord, I pray for any in this room that have yet to come to faith in Christ. And Lord, if, they're, if you're drawing them to yourself by your grace, I pray, Lord, that they would pray something like this. Dear Jesus, I know that I've sinned. I know that I can't save myself. But I believe that you died on the cross for my sins, that you rose from the dead and that you're coming back. And I ask you to come into my life forgive me and make me a new person. And Lord, also for those who are wandering or who have been wandering, we thank you, Lord, that you are the one who calls your children home. Lord, you tell us to come to you, all that are laboring or heavy laden, and that you will give us rest. And we thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.